It's Monday morning and you know what that means. No, not a start to another jury work week. It's time for building a better Cheyenne. So grab your hard hat, grab your hammer, or maybe just a cup of coffee, and let's get building. Hugh, Ken, how are you guys doing today? No complaints, sir. How about yourself, Dan? Can't complain either. Wouldn't matter anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's warming up out here. We're starting to see a little bit of spring, so I'm happy. Amen to that. Ken, I understand you're going to start us off with a joke this week. I do, I do, I do. I've been combing through it with a fine teeth comb all weekend. I want you guys to hear this concept out. Three white guys start a podcast. That's it. That's the punchline. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) But in all seriousness, Dan and Hugh, I see now that we're about 10 episodes recording deep. And when you think of the value add that we're trying to bring with our Building a Better Cheyenne show, where do you see potential improvements and what have we gotten right so far? Oh, great question. Um, I don't know what we would change. I just think we need to keep finding the, the, what makes Cheyenne great. And that's the people that live here and finding the great people to come talk to us. I like that. Short and to the point. There you go. You, how about yourself? Having just uh, recently experienced a job interview for Post AmeriCorps, I feel like you're asking me a job interview question. <laughs> I mean, you got the you got the right language with value add. Of course, got that from my time consulting, sir. <laughs> I I think this podcast is doing a great job in helping to spotlight some great organizations and great people. And speaking from my perspective, I know I learn a whole lot each episode talking to our guests about how their organization or business functions. And I think paired with that, we also get really nice personal perspectives from each guest as they kind of talk about their own life's journeys and experiences. As for improvements, I know a lot of the podcasts I listen to have some degree of audience interaction where audience members send in questions or comments. And maybe as we build up an audience base, this could be possible in the future. I mean, mm-hmm like an avenue for future guest recommendations too in that. But what you're saying with the sprinkling in the personal perspective and stories, that's something that I think we've gotten a lot better at as our episodes progressed and leaving more room for that ad lib and wandering from like the root of the discussion. We have two very special guests on today. They are friends and local comics of mine in Cheyenne. I'll be introducing the first of two guests He is half Larry David, half De Niro. (laughs) He is Cheyenne's king of comedy, responsible for the 20th best local cultural moment of 2020, which was the creation of the city's first comedy-specific open mic series at Dillinger's Bar. And prior to the pandemic, he was based in Los Angeles, where he started his own company, Cognitive Behavioral Theater. And he returned to his hometown, Cheyenne, to film a stand-up special at the famous Atlas Theater on March 6th. 2020 in a sense stayed. Please welcome one of our two guests today, a friend and mentor of mine, Dominic Syracuse. How are we hanging in there? Hey, so first of all, being told that I'm half Larry David, half Robert De Niro is the nicest thing anybody's (laughs) ever said about me in my whole life. And I'm trying as hard as I can not to tear up. That was, uh, was very kind. Also, I'd like to add, uh, not to boast, but that, um, that number 20 on Cheyenne's most cultural moments was actually Cheyenne's 20 most cultural moments. So I fit right 
right in dead last on that one, which uh, super, super proud about. <laughs> as long as we made the lineup, that's all. That's right. We made the list. We rounded it out, which is great. I think there was only 20 cultural things that happened in Cheyenne in 2020. And I just happened to be the least important, which is great. I'm super happy about that. I'm kind of surprised there were 20. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, it was really good. It was, it was really good. I, the, the funniest part is that two of my very close friends got sixth for just starting a podcast. So all they did was start a podcast made number six to give you an idea about where, where we fall in line. (laughs) Dan and Hugh, we missed out. (laughs) Missed out. I know. Fingers crossed for 2021. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate it. I, the The funny thing was, I, I honestly had no idea that one, that list was even being made and two, that I was on it at all. So when somebody sent me the link, I thought they were just sending me the link to say, hey, look at this cool article. And I read it and saw that we had made the cut. And I thought actually, I, I, I was really genuinely surprised and flattered. I thought that was pretty cool. And rounding out our second of two guests, Dan has the pump-up speech for us. Brianna Brand is someone I have the pleasure of collaborating with in the Cheyenne community for the last several years, helping to raise awareness for the charitable efforts and projects that our nonprofits lead. I usually end up making a fool out of myself and wearing wigs for some reason, which is always fun. So thanks, Brianna, for that. She was the longstanding director of operations at Grace for Two Brothers and recently transitioned to a role as the Director of Partner Services at the Greater Cheyenne Chamber of Commerce. Our second guest today embodies servant leadership. So Rihanna, welcome to the show and so grateful to have you and Larry De Niro with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Was super excited when I heard about this podcast and then to be a guest is a great honor. So I appreciate it. And I will tell you that Dan looks better in high heels than I do. So <laughs> there's that. I had, I had someone comment on my legs. It's like, wow, that lady's got great legs. And then they found out it was me. So yeah. got to work those calves, boys. <laughs> and lip syncing breathing by Ariana Grande is probably a top cultural moment. <laughs> it's an uphill battle for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, he definitely set the bar high. And that's why he won. He was amazing. <laughs> well, I'll never forget standing on the plaza, looking through the crowd to see who else was dressing up for the event. And I was the only one. Like, I was like, <laughs> okay, cool. I, I know we did have Poppy the Troll, if you remember. Stacy Becker. She was with Youth Alternatives. Okay. She came up bright pink hair and fully decked out. But you were the only cross-dresser, so that's <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I will say as well that, you know, I heard you guys talking in the beginning about things that could, you know, you're, you're at the 10th episode and evaluating what could be improved And I think diversity is the answer, you know, with these, you know, these three white males. So having a woman, a Jew and a crossdresser on the same show is a pretty big step (laughs) forward, I have to say. We're setting the bar high for future episodes. Again, setting the bar high. (laughs) So, Rihanna, I'll kick off our main discussion with something topical to what's going on in Wyoming. We recently spoke with Jeremy Bay, who is the current executive director of Grace for Two Brothers, and he briefly talked to us about suicide prevention bill HB0175, and you were involved in the advocacy for this bill 
And over email, you informed us about some of its provisions and the needs not currently being met in Wyoming. On March 22nd, it was struck down by a vote of 26 A's, 32 nays, and two excused votes. And we're recording this episode a week later on March 29th. What have been your thoughts over the past week? And how do you find the strength to continue this slow, unrelenting work around mental health and suicide prevention in Wyoming? Well, I will tell you we've come a long way. When I first started advocating, it was nearly seven years ago, and I had multiple representatives tell me they didn't believe in mental health. So the fact that we are getting some yay votes shows that we have made progression. About two years ago, mental health and substance abuse parity was passed, and that's where insurances cannot discriminate. So say your insurance is only covering six mental health visits, that's not okay. If you need to go more, you go more. So there was a change in that as well. That was Senate file 0052, and it did pass with a 55 to 4 vote. And that's this provision um, and amendment is including telehealth. Many companies were trying to charge more so that people could not receive their mental health visits just because everything was COVID and offices were shut down. So that did pass and that will go into effect July 1. But as far as House Bill 0175, it's kind of frustrating. We did hold our Behavioral Health Advisory Council. That's through Governor Gordon's office. We did hold that last Friday all day where we kind of dissected what's going on and what's happening. So we are doing a plan of action to see what each school district has implemented. I know here in Laramie County, we have something called OVEUS program which does a great job as far as anti-bullying conversations, but it doesn't dive into, you know, mental health. What happens with the person that is receiving the bullying? Are they, do they have anxiety from it? Do they have suicidal thoughts? And to counteract that, what, what's happening with the bully? You know, when I go present at schools, I often say, um, I address the bullies and say, you are more loved and cherished than you can ever know. There's got to be a reason why you're acting 10 feet tall and bulletproof. What's going on behind the scenes? And if you're afraid to talk about that, you know, acting out and being mean to other people is not going to help that. You have to be genuine about what's happening in your life in order to have friends. So you're probably pretty lonely if you're just sitting there bullying people. So the Hope Squad is up in Campbell County, and it is a peer-to-peer program. So the students of the school actually vote in who they think is a trustworthy person that they could go to no matter what. So it's a wide array of different students throughout the school. And then those students are trained in something called QPR, question, persuade, refer. And they it's really asking the correct questions, addressing the signs and symptoms, persuading someone to get help and where you would refer them to locally talking about asking the person who their trusted adult is rather than just saying, I'm calling your mom. Because the fact of the matter is they could be having a problem with their mom that's causing them to be depressed or suicidal. So that's the program that we're leaning towards. But again, there's a lot of research being done. We did some action items on Friday. So we will be diving into what each school district does have as far as suicide prevention programs, as well as the cost breakdown I know that the Hope Squad is $500 per school, so it's not that much 
Um, and we've spent years training throughout the entire state. Every county has multiple QPR trainers. So it won't be that hard to implement. And it won't be all on the school shoulders either. It is working with other organizations in the community to provide this. So kind of an update of where we're at. There are millions of dollars in cuts for behavioral health. So trying to figure out new ways of, of going about this is crucial right now. And in the lead up to this recording, you communicated with us that a school district having access to suicide prevention, education, resource services is different than having their own programs and services internally. I was wondering if you could break that down more because I think a lot of people struggle to comprehend that difference of like access versus what do we have internally at our disposal. Yeah, so I can't speak to a lot of the school districts, but making sure that, you know, we're not just addressing one thing. Just like the Obeas program, it is anti-bullying, but anti-bullying is one correlation to suicide ideation. It's not the causation. So we need to really dive in and see what these programs are offering. And here in Laramie County, we worked very hard to have all of the school resource officers trained as QPR trainers in hopes that this program would be implemented, um, the HOPE squads. So it's taking a step back, looking at the full picture of every county in order to move forward, hopefully next year with getting this bill passed. Well, your, your work in that is so impressive and tireless. And it's exciting to hear about those peer support programs in Campbell County as well. The methodology and sense behind that I don't know why I hadn't thought of it like that further, because I recall having friends in middle school who were very much struggling with feelings of depression or anxiety and either attempting or talking about potentially attempting. And then their parents would be called in to pick them up, many of which they had very terrible, toxic relationships with. And you just watch them like go home to that same situation and it repeat over and over again. And it was so frustrating to behold. And it was one of those things that really didn't click till later in like high school and college that, oh, that was a effed up situation and what could have been done to mitigate it. These potential programs and services are a huge step forward, undoubtedly. Absolutely. And the idea is that in providing the suicide prevention in junior high and high school, that they'll be able to carry it throughout the rest of their lives. And with being number one in suicide rates, mainly middle-aged white males, we need to open up this conversation. You know, we have that cowboy up mentality, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, that's physically impossible. Rub some dirt in it. That causes infection. Um, <laughs> get back in the saddle. If you broke your leg, that's impossible. So same with your brain. It's an organ. So these are things that I would like to change along with multiple other people um, would like to change. And I would like to think of the cowboy up mentality of, I don't know if you've ever been to a branding before, but it is where all of your neighbors get together. You bring food, you catch up, you help each other brand the cows. You, you do whatever it takes to help one another in, in getting that done. And so that's the kind of cowboy up mentality I'd like to see is our neighbors really reaching out, checking on one another and being there for one another when Times are hard. And as it pertains to working with partners and creating a conversation, when we had Jeremy Bay last on the show, we talked a lot about the success of the Grace of Two Brothers Gratitude and Ratitude event at Dillinger's. And Dom, you presided over that as MC. 
you wore a beautiful green sparkling jacket. It reminded me of that children's book where like the fish just goes around the sea, like collecting. Does the fish collect gems or does it give the gems away? Oh, um, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Well, we'll <laughs> link it in the bio in the script. Can anybody help me out here? Okay. Well, when I get a second, I'm looking it up and bring it to your attention because I want to prove I'm not crazy. No, I'm but, sure. I, I don't read. Let's continue with this intellectual conversation. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Continuing with this intellectual conversation beyond your your service on that night as MC, you and I also had the opportunity to stand up for the aging division, Wyoming Department of Health, which was a lot of fun. It was cool to experiment with Zoom comedy as well. But you are an awesome intersection in your career where you're taking your skills, whether it's acting or comedy, and utilizing them to bring tangible benefits to individuals, organizations. Could you give a little background, if you will, into your journey and how you've made an impact with your talents in whatever city you are, whether that's Cheyenne or Los Angeles? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been an actor and performer all of my life. I started in Cheyenne, Wyoming at the Little Theater when I was eight years old. And the funny thing was my teachers totally were like, this kid has ADD. He can't sit down or shut up. I see Ken nodding very like, of course, yes, yes, he does. (laughs) (laughs) And my parents were very much against any kind of medication. I love my parents very much, but they are not highly educated on mental health. And so like many people, they thought it was just something that I needed to just stop, just stop being like that, you know, cut it out kind of thing. But they were kind of understanding enough to go, listen, if you can behave in school, then you can go do theater, which is a place where you get to be loud and crazy and be seen and, you know, that kind of thing. And I lived for it. I mean, I I remember that was my motivator for getting good grades or even getting through the day was, you know, I couldn't wait till I could just go and do improv or acting or anything like that. And it carried through Um, president of, of theater club in high school. I was a theater major in college. I went and got my master's degree out of NYU at the Stella Adler Conservatory for Acting. And it was there that uh, they had an outreach program that went into prisons and they taught acting in prisons. Now, I've always been drawn to that throughout college. I worked supporting people with disabilities, mental and physical, to pay my way through college. And uh, this was kind of a way to cross the two. I could support a community in need, which was something I was very passionate about, using my personal love and passion, which was acting. And as I did, I fell in love with it. And there was a school in the prisons because the majority of people in prison in the United States have a third grade reading level. And over 90% of them don't even have as much as a middle school education. So they started a high school inside of the prisons, which then led to college, which then led to vocational training so that when people get out of prisons, they could get work. And they loved the acting program so much that they asked me if I'd be interested in using those techniques for their anger management and drug addiction program. And at the time I didn't see any connection, but I said, sure. Cause I'm an actor and I'm always looking for a gig. So I was like, Nope, that sounds good. And w- we went in there and, and I had to be certified in something called cognitive behavioral 
therapy. I'm not a behavioral therapist. I have not gotten a PhD in that. And it is a very sacred art form in the, in the world of psychology, but I was certified to teach it. So I had to learn a lot about it and I was able to teach certain curriculum. And it was eye-opening because I realized that so much of the reason that I even got into acting in the first place was quite psychologically based. You know, I had dealt with depression and anxiety for a long, long time. And like many people, I thought it was something I couldn't control. I thought it was just sort of a wave that kind of comes into your life and you just have to deal with until it goes away. And part of the training of CBT teaches you the roots of it, where it comes from, these kind of things. And then also specifically how your brain works. It's really about how the brain works and where anxiety comes from, where depression comes from, things like that. But also I found out that, you know, being listened to, like all of you are kindly listening to me right now, triggers the same chemical release in the brain as being hugged or being told that you're loved. And then being laughed at, as in if somebody laughs at you, that gives you the same dopamine hit as a bump of cocaine. To our brain, it's no different. And, and so I was able to start teaching these guys in drug addiction classes, something that we just called transform the hustle or transform the addiction, going, guys, you can get the same burst of dopamine by doing something productive as you can doing something destructive. And... It's very fascinating because what, what I also learned was the roots of anxiety and depression, which really are very natural. If you're a human being, listen, if you have a brain, then you're subject to anxiety. That's, that's it. It's not a matter of weakness or anything. Anxiety is simply the primal urge that every animal has when it feels like it's in danger. And the problem is, is when you don't do anything about that, when you don't take the time to calm yourself down, understand you're okay, or even understand that that's what's happening, it sticks around and it doesn't go away. And the chemical, which causes fear in your body called cortisol, doesn't go anywhere and it becomes toxic. I know toxic is kind of a millennial buzzword right now, but it has scientific roots. And now the studies are absolutely conclusive. They're in everywhere. You can look them up. There's no debating it. Cortisol causes everything from heart attack, stroke. There, there's, there's links to it causing cancer, physical, you know, issues such as everything from outbreaks on the skin to to degenerative disorders and things like this. And it, it, the root, the root cause is stress, and the root cause of stress is unmanaged anxiety. And so, when we talk about mental health. Physical pain registers in the brain the same way that mental pain does. The brain can't tell the difference between physical anguish and mental anguish. And so there are people out there in pain. One in six Americans take antidepressants, and those are just the ones who admit that they're having depression. And so to hear that, to hear that there are people, especially in the state, that deny mental health is even a thing is horrifying. And it's not surprising then that we have the highest rates of suicide because at the end of the day, that's just a form of medication as is drug and alcohol abuse, which we're very high in as is sex, which we also have a very high rate of pregnancy, especially amongst the teenage community. And 
so all that said, there are also natural remedies. Physical movement is one. Laughter is one. And that's why I kind of do what I do is trying to provide a free place for laughter, a free place for people. If you're a comedian to go be heard, which once again is to be loved and a place where we can kind of celebrate the wonderful things in life rather than, you know, which is kind of like a secret way of helping anxiety and depression in and of itself. I got a question for you in several of our episodes, you know, it's just listening to somebody like you said, or talking about something can be a huge help to somebody. Do you feel that it's getting easier for people to talk about mental health now, especially through the pandemic, you know, cause it's been a big topic of discussion. Absolutely. So, so, you know, we, I had a, we had a saying in the jails and it's one of my favorite sayings. We say there are only two kinds of people in this world those who admit they're messed up and liars (laughs) that's it right and and the funny thing about that is kind of the funny thing about acting and improv is that you know everybody puts on a mask no matter who you are whether you're an actor or not everybody loves to put on this i'm okay i'm untouchable everything's great with me kind of mask And then they hide certain things. They hide insecurities, they hide failures, they hide, you know, what's going on behind closed doors and all this stuff. And what's funny about that is that it just, (laughs) people think actors are liars because what they do is get up on stage and pretend to be something else, present something to be someone else. And the truth is, it's everybody else every day that's lying, that's not, you know, when, when you pass someone on the street and go, hey, how's it going? Very rarely do people stop and be like, I am a mess and I don't know what's going on with my life. And I am so scared. And, and also, we don't want them to. If they did, we'd probably run off like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was just looking for a fine. Time to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. But anyway, all that said, acting is just a resource for people to cathartically release those emotions. If you do pretend to be a character, like if, for instance, I'm pretending to be Hamlet, then I can rant about my depression for three hours in a play because I don't have to say, hey, this is me, Dominic, who deals with anxiety and depression. What I do is I use my personal angst and confusion and struggles, and I use that to latch onto as I'm saying these words, and I use that to bring truth. So to answer your question, I really, I I hope that people will start talking about mental health more because everybody deals with it. Everybody deals with it. And the more we talk about it, the more we normalize it. You know, like something that we have been really normalizing lately, and I mean this in a really great way, is, you know, something like health, like physical health. You know, it's very common now for people to walk around and give you very intimate details about their health. You know, like they're just like, oh, man, I got IBS. It's driving me crazy, you know. And and the thing is, is that it's becoming normal because it's normal. It's it's not something that we're necessarily stigmatizing. Whereas if we were to be more normal about our mental health, two things would happen. One, others wouldn't be so afraid to voice what's going on with them. And two, just like Brianna said, it would create a community. Because people really want to help each other. 
You know, people at the end of the day, they want to help each other. They want to be of service. And just like with acting, this amazing thing happens when somebody's brave enough to get up and be vulnerable and say something they were thinking, it all of a sudden sparks inspiration for everybody to then get up and say what they were thinking and say what they're feeling because there's permission because, you know, people don't want to be, don't want to feel like they're alone. And just to add a little bit to that, I I think that as each generation comes along, you know, I was at a couple of my friends and I, we hold something called whoop for soup because we love soup (laughs) once a month. And we're sitting there around the table enjoying dinner and we're talking about our last therapy session. And it's normal for us in a conversation. But if you go to some of the older generations, it was hush hush. It was mum. It was not seen as okay to talk about things. And I've even, you know, seen that as pushing kind of this conversation for, you know, the last seven years, admitting that I have a mental health diagnosis of CPTSD and people not even knowing what that is. Only very few therapists were doing EMDR about five years ago. That's eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which really does help CPTSD and PTSD. And so as we're moving forward, Again, the more people that are opening up and being unbashedly themselves in in their goodness and in their mess, I think it is opening up the conversation more. And I, I think that that's why we need to get at our youth now so that they feel comfortable from here until forever to speak about this. Absolutely. And, and if I may just add one last thing, this is another lesson I would teach in the jails is, you know, I, I would use what I call the Hydra principle. And that's not a Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. reference, by the way. It's the Greek mythology story of the Hydra, which was the the dragon. And every time Hercules would cut off his head, it would grow two more and two more. And it got to a point where it had all these heads. And in order to kill it, he had to let the beast swallow him and then stab its heart. And so often in our society, we have all these quote unquote problems. And what they really are is just different heads of the Hydra that have a single heart. And that's not only in people's personal lives. You look at society, we have things like drug problems, incarceration, homelessness, spousal abuse. We have, you know, all these sort of things. And many of them have the exact same heart. And the heart to all of it is a mental health issue, which means if somebody is feeling any kind of mental anguish in in prison, we used to call it when I was teaching in the jails, we call it the anger filter which means when you have certain emotions that you don't want to admit, especially vulnerable emotions, things like inferiority, jealousy, uh, feeling incompetent, feeling embarrassed, any, you know, the things that we deem bad or weak emotions, they go through a filter. And the only way that we let them out a lot of times is anger that's an acceptable emotion that people have, you know, and you hear, it's funny when you know that because you hear people all the time, oh, I just want to beat someone up or, oh, it just makes me want to tear this apart. Yeah, because it's, it's just like a puffer fish that looks bigger when it feels scared. It's exactly what anger is. It's a way of people to puff up and seem bigger than whatever's making them feel vulnerable. And then if, if you're not an angry person, a lot of people fall into drug use. A lot of people fall into medic- medicating themselves. A lot of people fall into just acting out 
whatever that may mean. But so much of the root of it is mental health. And if we were to go with children and start teaching them about mental health at a very early age and let them know that it's normal and everybody deals with it. And also when you're dealing with it, these are positive ways to cope with it then we wouldn't have these problems as adults because by the time we realized that it was a mental health issue, our hydras got 30 heads and we're dealing with each one of those problems individually. And it becomes, it, it becomes so much to handle. Returning to the whoop for soup events. I love that name. Thanks. <laughs> that like an organic process that developed over time, whereas at first it was just meeting the cash up and then it became more intentional with the conversations you were having or how did that, how did that end up going? So Whoop for Soup came about during COVID. We were doing, you know, just a couple of us getting together as we weren't sure exactly what was going on. So a couple of us friends started to get together and started inviting new people and we've seen upwards of 17 people at one. And we just, it's like potluck style. And it's a chance to get together once a month and really just see how everyone's doing. We all have kids. Well, most of us have kids. So there's, you know, about 13 kids running around all crazy. And we just sit there and, and talk about it. We feed our faces and our souls. So, yeah, that's how it started. <laughs> that's beautiful. I, I know sometimes when a friend will reach out and they'll say like, hey, let's get like coffee or a beer soon. That could just be to like catch up in general. But I, I've often struggled to create space intentionally, whether it's speaking for myself or trying to address what another person is going through, but to like lean in and compartmentalize on like what's going on in your mental health. I, I don't know if it's, using the crutch of comedy to just try to like keep things um, light or like avoiding like the bigger picture questions or like behaviors that I might be experiencing or them. But I, I just wonder to you, Tom and Ray, like as you've aged into, you know, your thirties, like was there a transition at all during that time? You're like, okay, I have to be very diligent and serious about this. And here's how I'm going to approach those conversations. Oh yeah. So just to, just to clarify, are you, are you asking, was there a time where we became diligent about specifically helping others or our own mental health? I'd, I'd say both. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny for me because I, I, I went down quite a rabbit hole right when I turned 30, actually, I spent the majority of my twenties depressed and not realizing it, but I mean, clinically depressed to where, I mean, I, now that I have terms for it, learning, learning psychology has given me terms for it. Like, oh, I didn't know that was a word. I didn't know there was a thing that, you know, that has a label. I thought it was just, wow, I just believe life sucks and is purposeless and I'm miserable every day. And that's just, I just sound like a person that's an adult, you know, because you hear that a lot. But as I said, when I started learning about CBT and things like that, I started learning about something I like to call mental atmosphere. And I could go down a whole jargon thing about how neurons are created in your brain and yada, yada, yada. But trust me when I say there's scientific evidence backing everything I'm about to say up. And it's not just woo woo kind of stuff. 
But the way your brain works is it works with the atmosphere that you put yourself in. So, so for instance, I like to think of what I see, what I watch, what I listen to. I like to think of it all as food for my brain. What am I feeding it? You know? And if all I do is surround myself with negativity, if I surround myself with, look at all the terrible stuff happening on the news, look at all the terrible stuff happening all around me. I'm listening to music or people or whoever who just reinforce that constantly talking about woes and problems and everything being terrible. All of a sudden my outlook on the world is this is an awful place to be. Everything's terrible. You know, that kind of thing. So what I would do in the jails was I would, the first thing I would do is show the guys inspirational videos. Like there's this great YouTube channel called people are awesome. And it's just people doing amazing things. Right. I mean, absolutely incredible thing. And there's another great YouTube channel that came out during the pandemic. Jonathan Krasinski from the office made a channel called the good news, where all he did was it was a news channel that only projected good news. And when you think about it, good news overwhelms bad news any day of the week, as in the amount of people that are doing good in this world, the amount of people who are just living their lives and enjoying life is so much bigger than those doing bad. I mean, it's, it's, the numbers are astronomical and to focus on that, to focus on, you know, people doing good in the world, people helping each other out, you know, focusing on stories of parties being thrown for first responders or somebody paying for somebody's gas all day long at gas stations. There's just something, all these random acts of kindness that are happening way more than the acts of violence or danger or anything like that, it, it gives you a brighter outlook on the world. And to speak in statistics, you know, there's a great book called The Culture of Fear, which showed after 9-11, violent crime went down in the United States upwards of 70%, but coverage on violent crime went up 600%. So if you watch the news, it seems as though the world got more dangerous when actually it got much safer. And so all that said, I started learning that focusing on the positives and doing things for my mental health, as in meditation, exercise, caring for others, taking time for others, even if it's just for a phone call, it takes work and it's a lifestyle, just like exercise or anything like that. And so I dedicated a lot of time to it. And you have to, because just like exercise or dieting, the second you stop, you revert right back to those old habits and those old patterns and those old things like that. And so it, it, it absolutely is a practice. It absolutely is a lifestyle. And it absolutely makes a massive difference in, in your day and your mood and, and all of that. Yeah. And just as far as like my personal mental health journey, it is embedded with focusing my intentions on the good. And no matter how horrible a situation is, finding that silver lining and key things, yes, meditation, physical health, what you're eating, all of that stuff is great. But a support system is key. And I think that that's something that we really need to pay attention to as far as mental health goes, because People do not have a support system right off the bat. You know, if they're coming out of the, the prison system like Dom has worked with, they may have family members or friends that are no longer 
associating with them. So, you know, looking at the survival modes of what are our basic human needs and are they being met for this person? And so in my mental health journey, I am a three-time suicide attempt survivor. My last was when I was 20. I call my oldest my angel baby because as soon as I had him, the look of unconditional love in a baby's eyes is worth living every breath and every step from there on out. But from there, you know, after my my third suicide attempt, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and I was trying to take the medication and, you know, we didn't have CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, EMDR. I mean, all of that was not here in Wyoming. So it was, it was hard because when these things were working for other people and not me, it left me feeling like the brokeniest broken person that ever was. So I started researching and I stumbled across the book called The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And that's the first time I heard about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. From there, I was working with the insurance in order to get them to pay for it (laughs) because it wasn't, you know, heard of here. And then finally found an incredible therapist to work with me and do the EMDR, which is absolutely life-saving and working through some of the trauma that had happened to me as a child, as a healthy adult. So I can say when I'm starting to have, you know, a panic attack or something like that, is that my inner child freaking out? Is that my survival mode kicking in? Is that, you know, what I was preconditioned for in my neural pathway in, in growing up like that? And how am I as a healthy adult going to handle this situation? So I think that knowledge is key in our mental health. Yes, I appreciate mental health professionals more than I could ever say. They're wonderful and amazing. And I appreciate the time that they take to get you know, their degrees and all of that stuff. But the reality is we, each of us as individuals, are the expert in our bodies and our brains. The doctors and the psychologists and the therapists, they're all taking words from us in order to make a diagnosis, in order to find the quote unquote cure or the pathway of living. They listen to us. So we need to know what's going on. We need to explain the science behind the brain. The fact that, you know, our medial prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for higher cognitive thinking, isn't fully developed until we're 22 to 25 years old. We need to tell the youth this. So as they're going through their first heartbreak and it literally feels like the end of the world to them, it's because they're creating those resiliency pathways in their brain. They don't have that yet. And so these first hardships, these first hurdles, it feels like the end of the world for them. So we need to educate and be willing to be educated and listen to people. Yes, the experts, but lived experience people too. Those that have struggled before, you know, Kevin Hines is a great example. He is a suicide survivor. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He's got the movie out there called The Ripple Effect. And what he's doing now to help prevent suicides all over the world is incredible. But he's honest about it. He says when he's struggling, he takes breaks. Another one is Craig Miller. He's an author of This Is How It Feels. 
And it's a, it's a story about his suicide attempt and what, what has taken place. But he's very honest online. Desiree Stage is another one. She does a program called livethroughthis.org. It's all about photo- photographing and telling the stories of suicide attempt survivors. And we create this kind of culture, yes, between all of us as survivors, but then to, you know, give permission for other people, like Dom said, to be open and honest about their situations. So as far as like my mental health journey, it was, it was hard. It was a struggle. There are days that I still get sad, but it's nothing compared to what it was where, you know, I didn't want to live. It, it took my therapist really working with me through some things from my past, even in the present. I did leave an abusive marriage, you know, a few years ago, but it was because of working through everything in the past that I could stand up and say, enough is enough. Here's my boundary. You know, I'm, I'm a healthy adult. Here's where I go from here. So I think that education us personally on what's happening inside our body and in our brain is so important when we are seeking help. To piggyback off everything you just shared there. And thank you for that with Dom and Ray. Body keeps the score. It is right in my drawers. Of course, our audience cannot see my video, but I cannot recommend it enough. It's by, as um, Bree said, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, and it is a great journey into brain, mind, and body in the healing of trauma. It absolutely informed the career I want to uptake in being a social worker and a lawyer. And if it was that pivotal, both myself and our guest lives today, I think it's well worth the read for anybody out there. Absolutely. I do want to give a trigger warning, though, because some of the content in there is very real, you know, rape scenes, etc. The first time I read it, it took me six months because I would pick it up, read it, put it down, and I would have to process, sometimes reread. So it does come with a trigger warning. Absolutely. Very much hope that everyone reads this book. But if you're struggling, please let someone know that you're about to read it. Maybe have them read it with you and talk with your therapist to, to dissect that in your support system. Because again, there are very triggering real stories in there. I appreciate you including that. And um, another literary reference we'd made today on a much more gentle, inviting manner was the story of the gems and the fish. And the rainbow fish is a book that has the message about sharing your distinct, unique qualities that make you special. And in the context of this book, this rainbow fish is going around sharing its very distinctive, shiny foil skins to the other fish in the ocean that might be more drab or down. And it gets to the point at the end where the rainbow fish has none of those. I, I think they have one like scale remaining at the end, but then the ocean is just flourished with people who have partaken in this beautiful love and support. And they have like a little element to carry on from that person. So managed to bring it in. <laughs> great, great children's book. And Rhea and Dom, you both mentioned the framing of your outlook and your intentions. And just this morning, Ken sent out an email to our Vista group. We have these weekly discussions about silver linings and the silver linings that we can find and appreciate during these hard times, such as a pandemic. And well, I mean, speaking personally, and it kind of relates to, to mental health, is that 
this pandemic for me has has connected me with a lot of college friends because we do these like monthly or bi-monthly Zooms and a lot of these friendships that might have been just lost along the way after parting ways from college have been maintained through these virtual Zooms. So that is just one silver lining I've been able to enjoy. That's awesome. Something that the chamber did throughout the pandemic was to reach out to two every single day, reach out to two, reach out to two business owners, reach out to, you know, two members of some sort and make sure that they're doing okay. And if they're not, then, then what can we do to help? Whether it be the CARES Act funding or figuring out a, a different marketing tool, staying open at different hours so that you can get your business back. And, you know, so it's important to have that support system and I'm glad that you have rekindled some friendships and hopefully going through a global anxiety wave of a global pandemic, those relationships are going to be the strongest. So I congratulate you on that. <laughs> and and I do have to say, you know, outlook is key. It is possibly the key to this thing that we call happiness. And a lot of people define happiness in a, in a lot of different ways. It's kind of an ethereal thing. But here's what I found in teaching in prisons and how it was a lifesaver for me during the pandemic was I began teaching in prisons four years before the pandemic hit. And when you meet guys in prison, a lot of them are facing life sentences and they honestly think their life is over. And also they'll never experience happiness again. And it's been taken from them. And once again, they view their outside circumstance as the cause of that. We can all understand that. Like, look, my family's been taken away. My life's been taken away. I can't accomplish any of my dreams. And now I'm just stuck in this cell and that's it. Happiness is something that'll never come back. And what we found was that's not the case at all. In fact, one thing that we would work on was, you know, I, I like to use the example of this one guy in there who he came in, he was super depressed. He was 19 years old, facing 20 years in jail. And I talked with him and he said that he was so depressed. And I asked him what his dream was before he got incarcerated. He said his dream was to be an author. And he's like, but now he can't because, you know, he's incarcerated 20 years, all this stuff. And I remember telling him, what are you talking about? You are currently living in like a writer's dream. You don't have to worry about rent. You don't have to worry about paying for food. All you have is time. Every author I know on planet earth was like, oh, I got to go to my day job and I got to pay these bills. And if I didn't have it, I would just write all day long. I'm like, you can literally write 24 hours a day, you know? And he really took that to heart. And in the year that I was interacting with him, he wrote two full-length books by pencil. He would carry it around, pencil, full-length books. And then he got so excited, he started turning those books into a TV series, which he had planned out seven seasons on. And then on top of that, he started ghostwriting the biographies of his cellmates because they were like, oh, will you write my story and all this stuff? And he was doing it. And the funny thing was he was even able to start getting publishing deals in incarceration. And so by the end of the time we left there, he was one, more successful and two, happier and more productive than he'd ever been on the outside 
while being in prison. And, and these stories were all over the place. I mean, I'd have guys every day come in and be like, you know, one dude liked to write inspirational speeches. He called it, you know, Monday motivations. And he'd write three minute inspirational speeches for the guys that he'd get up every Thursday. And he had a collection of them and he wanted to get that published into a book and all this. So what that taught me was it doesn't matter your outside circumstances. So long as you change your outlook on many things, then you can still, your outside circumstances don't have to stop you from being productive. And that ended up being the biggest thing in the world to me because the pandemic hit. I had a nationwide tour planned for stand-up. My business was thriving. And within a single day, all of my tours were canceled. All of my dates were canceled. My business went under. Every contract I had fell down. And I could have easily been like, oh, no, because of my outside circumstances, my life is over right now and all of this. But thankfully, because of all those people who taught me all those lessons inside, I was like, let's change the outlook on it. Came back here, started a comedy club, got a girlfriend. I ended up creating a YouTube channel, getting a writing job on a separate YouTube channel. 2020 was one of the best and most successful years of my entire life. And I credit it 100% to those people who were incarcerated and set the example for me that no matter what your outside circumstances are, you can still find happiness and you can still find joy and productivity. It just depends on the outlook you choose to take. That's a great message, Dom. And, and don't, don't sell yourself short. I mean, you came in 20th, right? Don't forget that. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> nice callback. <laughs> but you know what's, no, I do. I do have to say, I do have to say, you know, what's funny about that though, is, is it going to, this is going to be very corny. So bear with me, but like accolades or rankings aside, the truth is, you know, I just read this in a book about acting, Stella Adler's The Art of Acting yesterday. And Stella Adler is the acting teacher who trained Robert De Niro, Marlon Brando, Harvey Keitel, Kevin Costner, Selma Hayek, the musical Toro, the list goes on and on and on. But anyway, she said that so many people fall into the trap of looking for success in either awards, money, or fame. And she said, at the end of the day, you could have awards, money, and fame, but unless you feel like what you're doing is good, that's the only form of success, is what I am doing is good, and there is good here, and I am good at what I do. Once you have that, you don't need the rest. And so that's become what I've been striving for with anything. There are nights, especially in comedy night, where we have a sold out crowd and I'm telling jokes and people are laughing at them. And, you know, it was a very financially successful night, but then I go, I felt like I was phoning it in and, and, and therefore I'm unsatisfied with all of it because, you know, I didn't feel that connection to purpose or that connection to me doing my absolute best. And I think there's, there's a key to that too with, positive mental health, which is just finding that thing that you love the most and striving to do it all of the time. Well, I, thought, I think we're coming up on the end of our time here. So thank you to our guests today. 
Dom and Rhea. It was a great conversation and thanks for your insights and, and everything. Thanks for having us. It was really great. Before y'all leave, would you care to plug some events going on at either Dillinger's where the open mic night is or where people can follow your career and your you know advocacy in the community? So mainly my professional stuff is LinkedIn and it is Rihanna Brand. I'm working on a website, playing around with a couple of names. I'll let you guys know, but those are the best places to find me. And my Instagram, that's going to be more of the hula hooping, hiking, and my children. And that's NanaShine11. Yeah. And then you can find me on Twitter. It's at S-H-H-H-M-I-L-E. It's Schmile. So <laughs> that's what I use for American Association of Suicidology on their social media team. So um, you can find me every Tuesday at Dillinger's. I also have a YouTube channel of my name, Dominic Syracuse, with a lot of my comedy and content on it. Dom and Rhee, I care about you both very deeply and huge inspiration since I moved here. And I'm lucky to be able to know both of you. So thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thank you both for joining us this episode. And to our audience, stay tuned for our next podcast episode every Monday. And be sure to make the magic happen in your community. It's usually Ken's line, but <laughs> trying it out today. <laughs>